as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we thank you that you love us, that you have shown us that great love in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that today, as we come to your Word, as we think about the resurrection from the dead, as we think about getting things in right order in our own lives, that you might open our hearts to hear that. Father, I ask for clear speech and a clear mind for myself this morning, that you would move amongst us this morning, Lord, by your Spirit, that we might trust in Jesus, uh, to look to his return, to look to him being first and preeminent amongst all things, both in our lives now and on that great day and forever after. Uh, we ask for clarity together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, cousin, cousin Rona visited our house this week, so I'm a little bit... Um, a bit more musty in my speech, but I'm all good, thankfully. But sometimes when I am sick, I have strange dreams, and I have this recurring dream, uh, which comes from time to time, of the ocean. And I'm, I'm actually on land uh, at times in this recurring dream, and sometimes in the ocean, and there's these enormous waves coming. And uh, people have described surfing or being around the ocean as a bit of a thin space, from time to time. Sounds a little bit mystical. I'm not really into that kind of stuff, but um, my dreams are apparently. And uh, a thin space meaning you feel a bit closer to God in certain geographical or physical locations in the world. Um, but there's some people who take this to the nth degree. One uh, man, uh, his name is Kirby Brown. He's an extreme big wave surfer. So you've got the big wave surfers, you might think of Larrard ha Hamilton, you know, surfing in Maui, sort of 50-foot waves. Well, uh, this guy is an Aussie, Kirby Brown, and he likes to surf on waves where there is a 10-metre slab of ocean uh, sort of curling over you as there is just bare rock beneath you in the reef and you're trying to surf along this wave which looks like you are going to certainly die. And in fact, he won't go out unless the waves are so extreme that he gets that sort of edge of glory and death, that moment when he might uh, possibly die, but possibly feel the exhilaration of being on the edge of death. You know, a big, bit of a movie coming out uh, about uh, the surfer Kirby Brown. And uh, in a write-up about that movie, it describes what's going through his head. It says... Kirby needs the ocean to quieten his head noise, but he won't tackle the ocean unless the surf is terrifying. So his life is an eternal tightrope of treacherous waves and riotous downtime. Facing monsters is a deep dive into this perilous predicament. Talking about my struggles was important, he says. I had to be honest so that people who've gone through hard times can relate and take a positive message out of the film. I've taken that self-destructive path for many years, you know, alcohol, drug abuse, for a long period of time. I was lucky to have surfing and to have that passion inside me to pull me through in the end. The ocean pretty much saved me by opening up and telling that side of my story. I hope that anyone who struggles with any kind of the thing that they can't see, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a way out. It doesn't have to be the ocean. Just follow anything you're passionate about, anything in nature. Just get off the couch. There's a lot of beauty out there. It's interesting the, um, the way he describes his passion for surfing and danger in particular as sort of a salvation story, if you will. Like if he gets this thing right, everything else in his life will be in right order. 
Unfortunately, the scenes of this movie uh, put forward of his wife and children being terrified as they watch him like facing these monstrous waves and the threat of death. And so there is this real tension between surfing and family, between the, de- the possible death and glory and looking after his family. And it does beg the question, where are this guy's priorities? Now, it's good not to be too critical of people you don't know. However, uh, having a look at this movie and this guy's life, I wonder whether if he really got severely injured or died, whether he would realise that his priorities were out of order. Were out of order. Now, as we come to... Daniel chapter 12, actually the end of our Daniel series. As uh, Mandy shared earlier, we have come to the end of a prophetic book, a book which the first half really tells us about the life of uh, Daniel and we learn a lot about how to live as God's people in a secular world, in an environment where people don't recognise Jesus Christ as God. We've learned a lot about that, we've learned a lot about praying and depending on him. The second half of the book really focuses on the world to come which is the end times the Bible describes, which is the, um, the, sort of, the three dots, as you put it, between when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and his return. We're in that end time, the Bible tells us, and it describes what is happening. But as we get to the end of the book of Daniel, it zooms in on this last time, And we are told to get things in right order, to focus on some things and not others. And so I want to explain to you this morning how to put first things first, okay? First things first. Uh, This is a quotation um, that uh, a friend of mine, Pastor Timon, shared with me who's in Queensland at the moment, but he put it this way. He says, if you get first things first, you get second things thrown in. If you get second things first, you lose both first and second things. And so Kirby Brown's experience of being a big wave extreme surfer might well be that if he continues down that path, he will realise he loses everything if he doesn't put his family first. But I want to tell you there is something far greater at stake and it's our relationship with God. And so in order to put first things first, we must do three things. The first will be to avoid distractions, which we'll look at shortly. The second is to find our foundation in the truth. And the third is to keep our eyes on resurrection glory. Okay? So number one, avoid distractions. Now, my cousin... Uh, is a little bit infamous, or my, so my cousin's husband is a little bit infamous, because when they were on a, uh, in Sri Lanka uh, several years ago, um, sort of travelling around the world, he decided to take a selfie with an oncoming train. Would you believe it? You know, because it was popular back then, apparently, on social media to take selfies with oncoming trains, but he literally ducked out of the way, like, with hairs, split between him and this train. Now, of course, afterwards he realised that was a silly decision, but in the spur of the moment, he got a bit distracted by the glory of having a photo with your face and an incoming train in Sri Lanka. Not a good idea, of course. Uh, The rest of the family continues to tell him that was a bad idea, but he got totally distracted. He got distracted that there was death coming towards him if he stayed in line with that train. And distractions can be very dangerous. And there's three particular distractions we find in our text. And they're really summarised, actually, 
uh, in verse 4. Let's have a look at this. So this is a description, this is coming to the end of that vision that we've seen uh, from chapters uh, 10 through to chapter 12 uh, in Daniel. But as we get to the time of the end, uh, there's some things that we're not to do, but other people will be doing in our day and age. We see this in, chapter, in verse 4. It says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So Daniel's got a job to do. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So at the time of the end, you know, Daniel's been told a few things to focus on, a few things to keep first in his mind as he writes these things down, some things not to worry about. But he says the, what many people will be doing will be running to and fro. And knowledge will be increasing. People will be busy and searching after knowledge. And so the first distraction that we see, a distraction from keeping first things first, a distraction away from our relationship with God is busyness. I want you to notice that it talks about those who are wise earlier in the book, but now it talks about everyone else and they'll be running to and fro. They'll be consumed by Busyness. Now, busyness is probably best uh, described as uh, something like this. It's when distractions become the main thing and the main thing becomes secondary. The Bible is not against working hard. In fact, it's for working hard. We see this particularly in Jesus' own life. He was a, for lack of a better word, hard-working man. The Apostle Paul was a hard-working man, but they were not busy with the wrong things. They were not distracted with secondary things. They kept first things first. And so busyness is a sign that things are out of order in our lives. And we probably know it, don't we? We have this feeling when we're not really focused on the right things. When our life is out of order, when all these other things are consuming us other than the things we ought to be focused on. So busyness is the first distraction that we can be consumed by. And interestingly, the people that are going to and fro in the text don't know where they are headed. It's another sign that you are too busy. You haven't got yourself focused on where you ought to be going. The second distraction is mistaking knowledge for wisdom. So we're told here that in these last days, knowledge shall increase. And we are very much in that information age, are we not? They tell us that the amount of information that we have is sort of doubling every two or three years at the moment with the internet and our ability to store information. Does that make us wiser? No, it does not. So knowledge and the increase of knowledge should not be mistaken for wisdom. I'll put it this way. Knowledge can just be information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. The Bible tells us that wisdom comes from God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, actually in relationship with Him. You cannot know what to do with the world that you're in unless you know the God who put you in this world, the God who invented you, and the God who invented everything around you. It does not make sense. We must remember that this God is relational too. He's not some abstract force out there kind of pulling strings from behind the scenes. He is personal and we know that because God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person Jesus Christ. There is, like, we don't need any more evidence than that. God has come to us. The whole sort of center point of the Christian message and the Bible is that God has come to us 
as a person to personally relate to us. And so in our relationship with him, we find wisdom. That is getting things in their right order. That is putting first things first. So I've seen a couple of distractions. One is busyness, and we sort of know that internally when we're busy, the things are not right. Uh, we probably realise that mistaking knowledge for wisdom is not a good idea, and so we can know lots about lots of things but not know the creator, and so not know what to do with that information. But thirdly, the third distraction that we can have is worry. Now, this actually pops up a few times in the book. Uh, when Daniel is told sort of a few things that are going to happen, he's told about uh, you know, the deliverance of his people, he's told about a coming resurrection, which may have made a little bit of sense to Daniel, but not a whole lot until we don't realise what this really means until the New Testament, until this sealed book's open. But what is Daniel told to do? He's told to, but you, Daniel, verse 4, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Don't worry about it. Right? See the same thing in verse 9. Daniel asks, what shall happen? You know, what shall be the outcome of these things? He's, he asks the angel. And the angel says to Daniel, again, similar words, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Second time, Daniel, don't worry about it. It's not for you to bother about. Third time, verse 13, we see it again. Angel speaking to Daniel, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. One of the things that can consume people and becomes a distraction is worry. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels a little bit like there's events happening around the world which are going to culminate in something. It feels like that. We don't know exactly what's going to happen because we're not God. So we can predict, we can assume, but we do not know. And worrying about it does not help us. This text actually tells us that God has got it all tied up in the end. It mentions the end of days, the end, many, many times. God has got it all sorted out. But worry, trying to discern you know, the day and the hour that Jesus will return, trying to work out all the meaning of the events in the world and their particular detail, does not profit us. There are some things which are very helpful for us to know, and they're in the Bible. But there are some ambiguous things which people have been trying to work out for 2,000 years, and they will not become any clearer by worry. And so we are not to worry because it becomes a distraction. Again, Jesus teaches on this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry about the, you know, the goings-on of the world. Don't even worry about how to look after yourself too much with you know, uh, getting income, providing food and clothing for yourself, your general necessities. If you put first things first, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. So, it's a little bit like charting course if you're on a boat, Right? If, if you, let's say you set out to sail from Adelaide to Darwin, okay? So it's, it's a fair way. You've, you know, it's a long way to go. You've got to go through some treacherous seas. Either way you go, sort of whether you turn left or right uh, to get around uh, this large country to Darwin, but you must use navigational equipment. You must have a map to know where you're going. And you must regularly chart your course by looking at the map and by using your navigational equipment to work out where you are 
and where you're headed and then direct the boat in that way. Okay? That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty much the same for any sort of navigation. But there is no point in having the tools if you're not going to use them. There's no point having the tools if you're not going to use them. One of the issues with uh, life is that we can be distracted by many things. It can be busyness, it can be worry, it can be this constant search for information, which we're always trying to discover more and look for more and trying to work out all the details of the end. But God has actually given us uh, some details, but not all. But he tells us where we're going, and he tells us how to get there. One of the fights for the Christian is to actually live a life of consistency in course correction. Consistency in course correction. That is, we draw near to God through prayer, through gathering together as a community of God's people, and through coming under his word to correct our course until we get to this resurrection end that is promised. We are in constant need of course correction. One of the great dangers, though, is that we avoid it. We become inconsistent. Can you imagine, just picture again, the, the boat travelling from Adelaide to Darwin. Right, It's a long way. You imagine you take you know, five days without checking where you are and where you're headed, and you're out on the ocean. It might be quite difficult to actually be going in the right direction then. And so you have to course correct much further unless you are very consistent in the way that you use your navigational tools and your map to head in the right direction. So we must fight then not to be distracted, but to stay on course. Okay, so to keep first things first, we must avoid distractions. Secondly, we must find our foundation in the truth. Now, I spoke a little bit about um, uh, North America's first uh, overseas missionary, Adoniram Judson, uh, last week, and his wife, Anne, who um, actually were missionaries in Burma or Myanmar, and uh, they really felt moved by God, and he initially started out as a bit of a a deist uh, when he got to university. That means he believed that God was out there, but didn't really care about the internal affairs of this world, and then he was invaded by God in his life and realised that Jesus Christ does care about him and he gave his life, he surrendered himself to God and then God sent him away. He felt moved to tell other people around the world about this Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth. But as I've been reading through this biography, it's been very troubling because uh, Adoniram's first three children die, uh, some very young Uh, His first wife dies. Uh, People around him are continuously dying uh, out in uh, this faraway country from his home. And then uh, a bit of a good story, Um, Adoniram uh, remarries another woman while he's serving as a missionary in Burma. And uh, they get along really well, obviously. They get married. They have six more children, would you believe it? And... Uh, then they're sailing back because there's a bit of sickness getting through the family. They're sailing back uh, to the United States to drop off their children because of the health concerns that they have for them and his second wife dies on the boat ride. Now, it's quite a harrowing story because you just think, gee, 
you know, like really giving yourself to God can surround you with a lot of death and a lot of devastation. And that's really the story of the Bible, right? If even our Saviour, you know, ended his earthly ministry in some ways through death, why should we expect less? Why should we expect less? You know, the the Jesus' 12 apostles, almost all of them were uh, killed for the faith. And that's the story of the early church. It's a story of persecution. And yet, for some reason, they kept going. On the boat to the United States uh, from Burma, this is what Adoniram Judson writes just after his second wife died. For a few days in the solitude of my cabin with my dear children crying around me, I could not help abandoning myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promise of the gospel came to my aid and faith stretched my view to the bright world of eternal life. At this point, Adoniram Judson was 57 and yet God led him to keep first things first in his life. That is, though there was suffering, though there was difficulty, his life was filled with light and purpose and even joy that the people of Burma would know Jesus. There were no Burmese Christians when he started. And for the first 12 years, only 18 people converted. But over the course of about 24 years, Adoniram Judson was able to produce a Bible translated from the original language into the local Burmese language. Over the course of his life, his goal was to see maybe 100 people converted. There was 100 churches planted over the course of his life and many thousands, I reckon about 8,000 people converted during the course of his life. But his foundation was found in the truth. And the truth in this text is quite confronting in some ways. We see this in verses 10 and verses 13. The wicked will continue to be wicked. People will continue to do evil things in this world right until the end. And that's really been the story of humanity. One of the uh, biggest arguments against Uh, Christianity or against there being a divine being with all power is evil in the world. And yet, the Bible tells us, yes, there is evil, but it will come to an end. There is a definite end point to it. It has been decreed that there will bring an end and God will bring that end about. So we must take a reality check that the wicked will continue to be wicked, but there will be an end to it. Now, I ran my first marathon earlier this year, which I was just before my 34th birthday, which I was really happy to get in. And one of the things you notice about running long distance is that you need to keep the end in sight in order to keep going. You need to keep the end in sight in order to keep going. It propels you almost when you have a fixed location in mind. And so as I prepared my run, I had an end point in sight. As, as I continued to run, I could see where I was going and thought, just a little bit longer, I'll finally get there. And so by the last sort of five or six kilometres, I was actually enjoying it, even though my body was starting to die internally, because I was near the finish line. And for us, we must keep the end in sight. Though there is evil in the world, God is bringing it to an end. That's the first truth we see. Another truth we see in the text is that God's people will be delivered. 
So we see uh, in verse 1, it says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been, so as never has been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. And we see the same thing in verse 7. There is a strong sense that God will look after his own. God will look after his own. If you are part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a place in God's eternal purpose. And that is very comforting. That is very comforting, but it's something that we need to be constantly reminded of. We see that there's a deliverance coming, but the Bible also speaks that there is a deliverer coming to bring the deliverance. So it's not just in some abstract way that people will be saved out of difficulty, God's people will be saved out of difficulty. No, a deliverer, capital D, deliverer will come to save his people to bring them out of evil, to win them into an eternal kingdom, to rule over them with perfect justice and mercy in love. That is the promise of the Bible. It is not just a deliverance, but a deliverer who brings this great deliverance. And so it is in the deliverer that our hope lies. We see also in verse 2 another truth, that God will judge the living and the dead. God will judge the dead because they will rise up who are asleep in verse 2. In the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a judgment coming. And there is a judge coming to do the judgment. Now, it is interesting because one thing that we have not escaped in our postmodern world is a sense of justice. We've just changed the goalposts a few times. But we still appeal to justice. And we appeal once we've sort of worked our way through every court system and even a constitution in this country, might appeal to a high, what we believe could be a higher court, maybe the UN or you know, the Charter of Human Rights or something like that. We keep appealing to a higher court because we believe that there is some sense of justice in, their world, in this world or there ought to be. And so whatever you think justice is, Every person has a sense there ought be justice. Well, let me tell you, there's a higher court than the UN. There's a higher court than the Supreme Court of Australia. There's a greater law than the Constitution that we hold to in this country. And it is God's law, and it is God himself and his son, Jesus Christ, as judge. And everything will come out and be dealt with rightly on the last day. Now, this is good news for some. It's good news because nothing will be missed. He is a perfect judge. He doesn't do things too, he doesn't go too far and he doesn't go too little. We're in a country sometimes where we feel that uh, sometimes the government goes too far with things or sometimes they don't go far enough. Our justice system, we think it could be either way. With God, it is always exact. Now, this is good news for those who've been hurt or for those who've suffered injustice because you know that God will set things right and he will undo all the injustice in the coming new world. He will undo it. He will judge it and he will deal with those who've done evil. I said it's good news for some, but it's scary news for others because there's two ways to go, is there not? There's two ways to go. There's with God or without. There's on the side of the judge. He makes a just judgment and declares his people righteous or he doesn't. 
Now, you might say, well, what makes someone righteous? Well, it would be determined on the basis of the law. Did they obey the law or not? I was chatting with a taxi driver in Sydney last week, a week before, yeah, uh, about uh, this very thing. You know, I asked, do you believe that there's a... uh, there's a God, and they said, well, yeah, maybe. Do you you think that you would be in the grace of that God, that that God will take care of? He said, yeah, I've been a good person. And I said, well, on what basis are you a good person? Yeah, well, I've lived a good life, haven't hurt anyone. But if there is a judge up there, then the judge has a law. And have you kept or not kept that law? And he said, well, I don't even know what the law is. I said, aha, there's the issue. Have we kept the law? Do do you even know what the law is? Do you know there's 613 laws in the Old Testament? And not one person could keep all of them. Not one. So how on earth can someone be righteous in the sight of this judge? Only if one would come, a great deliverer. Only if one would come, the righteous one, The righteous one would come and that he would live a perfect life. And that person, the Bible tells us, is Jesus Christ. God become flesh and dwelt among us. That person who lived the perfect life is Christ. And so he stands in our place, both to take our judgment for our sin, but also to be our righteous advocate. And to say, I stand in their place. I'm good for their sake. I will bear their sin and take its penalty on the cross myself and I will live in righteousness for them. So when the just judge of all the earth looks at us, he sees Jesus in all his righteousness. So God will judge the living and the dead. It's interesting this sense that this truth must undergird our lives. Jesus is described in the New Testament as the cornerstone, the cornerstone, the one, and I used to be a landscaper in a previous previous career, and the cornerstone, I used to build block walls, and was the first block that you would lay, and everything else was based upon that block. It became the datum point for the engineers or the builders amongst us. And so everything else was based upon the if that uh, cornerstone was laid in the correct place, then I would consistently measure everything upon that to make sure everything else was in the right place. The Bible tells us that Jesus must become our cornerstone. Him being the person of truth must become our cornerstone. We read this in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this truth described here in terms of deliverance, in terms of just judgment, actually comes through a person, a deliverer, a judge, and the personified truth, Jesus Christ. Did you know that no one else, no other great religious figure, head of any of the the big religions, has claimed this claim? None. And Jesus backs it up. As you read the record of his life, you see him being the embodiment of truth in every way. And so when you align yourself with him, when he becomes your cornerstone, when he is your deliverer, 
when he sits as judge, but also the one who would take your penalty and be your righteousness, then you stand in the truth. Keeping first things first means keeping Jesus first in your life, that he would be your cornerstone, your foundation for truth. That means, by way of application for you and I, that God's word becomes the source of truth for us. The source of truth for us. Not what you read in the newspaper, not to say that that's necessarily wrong, but to say that your primary source of truth is God's word. It is your datum point. It is what you measure everything against. Not what your friends say, not what your university lecturer tells you, not what you read on social media or the YouTube videos that you watch, but God's word. And so if it is to be our datum point, and if we are to build the structure of our lives correctly, we must keep first things first and continually come back to it. That is why in these last days, we must become people of the word as much as ever. We must read it. More so, we must come under its authority. More so, we must be in community to do that. And those things are non-negotiable. Let me explain why. You can know the Bible really well, but not be a part of community. And so you will have a lot of rough edges that won't be smoothed off. You'll read things a certain way because of your personality. You'll gloss over certain parts because they don't suit where you're at at the moment. You won't have the benefit of experience and wisdom of people around you. And so you'll be a very narrow uh, and shallow person if you do not have the God's word in community with others. It is utterly important. I cannot stress that enough. There's no solo Christians in the New Testament. There are exceptions to this, of course, particularly if you're a secret believer you know, in an Islamic country, sure. But even then, to grow, you need other Christians around you who together will go through God's word. And so we're not just people of the book, we are people in community, we're people in church. Utterly important. Okay, so we've looked... Keeping first things first means avoiding distractions. Keeping first things first means finding our foundation in the truth, and that being Jesus Christ, and grounding ourselves in his word. Thirdly, it means keeping our eyes on resurrection glory. Look at this in verse 13. It says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allocated place at the end of days. There'll be a rest, there'll be a resurrection, and there'll be an allocated place for Daniel amongst all of God's people. I stayed up to watch the, uh, the, Queen's, the Queen's funeral on Monday night. I don't know if any of you found that interesting. I didn't really want to, but I thought this is one of those big moments you can't miss, so I did. And I was very interested by what uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury said as he shared the homily or the, the sermonette uh, at the funeral. And there was a lot of scripture in that funeral, was there not? Yeah, it was quite interesting to see all these dignitaries all surrounding. And this center point was a woman, you know, in a casket, and yet there was a cross amongst it. 
you know, it, it was a golden cross, mind you, not a rugged wooden cross. It was a very interesting statement to see a world stop for a moment, all the, the most powerful leaders in the world stop for a moment and hear that there is a power above them. Was it not a big moment in the world that all this mess is going on, all these troubling thoughts are going on, and yet people were saying there is a greater power and everyone was quiet. There was no other word but the word of God. It was quite an important moment in history when we just got a sneak peek behind the curtain. Who's really in charge here? What's really important here? What are first things? And they are about someone risen from the dead. The Archbishop of Canterbury said this, The pattern for many leaders is to be exalted in life and forgotten after death. The pattern for all who serve God, famous or obscure, respected or ignored, is that death is the door to glory. We will all face the merciful judgment of God. We can all share the Queen's hope, which in life and death inspired a servant leadership. Service in life, hope in death. All who follow the Queen's example and inspiration of trust and faith in God can with her say, we will meet again. It's quite profound to think that this woman of grandeur on earth has just become a humble servant of God along with everyone else in heaven. Her crown has been laid before him amongst every other person who has faith in God and has been taken into heaven awaiting the resurrection from the dead. And this has been proclaimed to all the greatest leaders of the world. So the queen will be in her allotted place with Daniel at the end of days because she believed in him, not because of her prestige or her power. Why could the queen have this concrete hope? Why? Could Daniel have this concrete hope? Why could you and I have this concrete hope that we'll all come together at the end? Because first things come first. Because there was one who first rose from the dead. The Christian story reaches this crescendo in the Gospels when Jesus Christ, the one whom the hope of glory is all rested on, dies on the, on the Friday, but on the Sunday, he raises. He overcomes death. Death itself is put to death. He rules and reigns over the great enemy of humanity, death itself, and he has conquered it. And he has won a path to victory for all his people. He has walked through the door from death to glory, and unlocked that door for all who would believe in him. And so he whom is first has first risen from the dead. The Bible calls him firstborn from the dead, so that all his people could follow in his footsteps. That is why Daniel can rest he cannot worry because there is one coming when the books are unsealed who will reveal all things. 
And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the center point. He is the focus. He is where first things are put first. I want you to notice something in the text. The book of Daniel can be quite confusing for people, and Daniel's told not to worry about it. He's told not to worry about times, times, time, times, and half a time. He's told not to worry about 1290 days and 1335 days. Because the books are sealed. Daniel, don't worry about it. I've got it sorted. That's not the focus. Worry about the deliverance. Worry about resurrection. Look forward to that. Look forward to your place with me. I think God would say the same to us. However, listen to this in Revelation 22 from verse 10. This is what it says. This is the companion book in the New Testament to Daniel. Verse 10. Of, Daniel, of Revelation 22. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Hear the echoes of Daniel chapter 12 here in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me. What is that? He is a deliverer and judge to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Is it not that the culmination of all things is in him? Is it not that the culmination of all things is in him? Here the books are unsealed. Why? Because he has come. The deliverer has arrived. The judge is there. Do not seal up the book. Proclaim to everyone he has come. There's little more motivation than that Christians need other than to really believe the truth of his word to then go tell others. I mean, if we really believed, we're told in John chapter 7, then the work of Christ given to us in the Holy Spirit would flow out of us like rivers of living water. The thing with a river of living water is it just keeps going. It keeps gushing out. You can't stop it. You know, I could give you 10 ways to be a better evangelist if you're a Christian here this morning. I could give you 15 ways to be able to share your faith with more accuracy and clarity. I could give you 25 apologetic tips. But there's one thing that will move you and that has moved people over history. And it is how big Christ is, how first he is in their life. If he is first, if he is number one, if he is constantly being lifted up, if your course is constantly being redirected unto him, if your datum point, your cornerstone is Jesus, you keep coming back. You keep looking upon what he's done, the, the things that angels have longed to look into and continue to, and they're still astounded by. These angelic beings are astounded by the work of Jesus. What makes you think that you should not look into it? And the more that you do, the greater he is. I mean, the crescendo, really, of the book of Daniel is that there is one coming, but our story is he has come. And so go and proclaim it. Go and tell it to all the world. Do not fear. Why do not fear? Because the evil will still be evil till the end. Keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. Run the marathon. 
See where you're going. Keep charting your course if you get lost. Be in community. Don't get lost. One of the things about a sheep, a sheep is that it can, when it goes astray from the flock, it gets lost. But we have a good shepherd who goes and grabs his sheep and brings them back. And so when they're together, they're the flock. And the flock is bright and white and shiny for all those sheep that are around it. They look up to this great shepherd who would lead his sheep, who would lay down his life for the sheep, only to take it back up again of his own authority, only to be called the lamb who was slain for all eternity with all of heaven around him, worshipping him. So this is the vision that I want you to have for this church and for your life. This is the vision. I want you to have a vision for your life where first things are first, where things are in right order in your life, when Jesus is number one and you are constantly renewing and refreshing yourself in community, in God's word, humbly in prayer before him. Right? That's the individual message. The second vision I want you to have is one of a whole church community doing this together. This is where we're headed. A community of people who together put first things first. Where God is penultimate. He is supreme. He is in every way the top in our lives. And together we sharpen one another. And together we stir one another up to love and good works. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts when the church is gathered like a bride before her groom. That is the great picture The third vision that I want to give you, the third vision I want to give you is one of every Christian throughout history, in every generation, surrounding the throne of glory around Jesus, because that is the end game. That is where all of us who believe in him are headed. And to have that, that goal, that day of Christ Jesus as where you are going. We have a vision personally, we have a vision together, and we have a vision for where we are going. Let me finish by reading out to you what it will look like on that last day, and then we will pray. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful, we are so indebted, and yet you have freed us from our debts. You willingly gave yourself on the tree on that cross for us. And risen from the dead, Lord Jesus, and ascended into heaven, you are the mighty King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one to whom all worship and honour 
and blessing and glory is due and will be forevermore. Lord, I ask that you would give us a bigger vision for our own lives, that you would put first things first in our hearts. We know that this is a work that you do. You give us a vision for a church where first things are first and you would set us on course with our minds fixed on a great day when with all the chorus of creation we'll be prepared like a bride for her groom where we would honour and worship you as is your due for all eternity. And we give you thanks together now in Jesus' name. Amen.